morning, everybody. Happy Sunday after Thanksgiving and first Sunday of Advent to you. Um, before we get started this morning, I want to mention, you know, Coach Paul, Paul Brigard, is retiring from Bible Bowl um, because, you know, obviously he has uh, challenges now that Bible Bowl is low on his list of priorities. So he did it for 15 years, and uh, we had a special last Sunday of the semester to recognize him in Bible Bowl, but we wanted to recognize him publicly. He's not here today, which is actually good because we got him a photo book. And so if you were ever uh, a Bible boy or gospel girl under Coach Paul, and that includes a lot of you, even some of you young adults, because Coach Paul did it for 15 years, or if you were ever a coach in Bible Bowl when Paul was coaching Bible Bowl, would you please come and sign this book? There's pages in the front, which is not quite full. There's uh, three pages in the front, and there's three blank pages in the back where you can sign and we'll give it to Paul on a Sunday morning first opportunity we get, okay? So I'm just going to leave this here, and so I would encourage you after the service to please come up and do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this first Sunday of Advent. We thank you, Father, for the great sense of anticipation that the people of Israel had waiting for a Savior. Father, we pray that in our hearts you'd build that same kind of anticipation as we prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Galatians 4, chapter 4, we read, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. The Advent's theme this first Sunday of Advent is hope. But think about it. Waiting is hard, isn't it? And hope always involves some sort of waiting. And hope is harder when you have to wait for something that you really want, something you're really looking forward to. In fact, the longer you wait, the harder it is to hold on to hope. Did you catch that in our Advent liturgy this morning? For more than 400 years, the people of Israel waited on the Messiah. 400 years. That makes the time you spend in line at the license bureau or in the post office or waiting to get through the bottleneck on the expressway seem a little bit shorter, doesn't it? We don't like to wait. Some of us, like admittedly me, are less patient than others. You hear that amen coming from my wife. We live in a microwave fast food culture. We want things done right now. I have a structured settlement and I need cash now. And now it's not working. Let's see if we can get back to it. Boy, that's disappointing. There we go. I have and I okay. <laughs> I don't know if it was worth it after all that trouble. We like drive-through lanes, don't we? As long as they're fast, too. We don't want to earn money the old-fashioned way. Well, that takes time. But we want it instantly, like in gambling or in the lottery, which is clearly another form of gambling. We don't want to lose weight over a period of time through diet and exercise and lifestyle changes. We want a pill that will melt off those pounds instantly and magically and fast. We also don't want to allow the Holy Spirit to develop spiritual maturity over a lifetime. We always want shortcuts in almost anything. The comedian Stephen Wright once said, I took a course in speed waiting. Now I can wait an hour and only 10 minutes. 
He also once said that I bought a microwave fireplace. You can spend an evening in front of it in only eight minutes. It's funny because we want everything fast, don't we? It's, uh, even we want relaxing fast. We want to be able to relax quickly, which we often need, but we can't seem to find the time to do. But the Word of God tells us that for certain things to happen in time, apparently the time must be just right. Or as Paul wrote to the Galatians, it must be full. It seems, according to Scripture, that at just the right moment in human history, when God's providential oversight of the things and the events in the world had fully prepared people for the incarnation, it had fully prepared them for people to hear the gospel message for the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's when the time was full. And that's when God sent his son. It wasn't too early. It wasn't too late. It was at just the right time. We know the time was right because the word tells us so. We can only speculate as to why it was just then as opposed to some other time prior to that or sometime later than 2,000 years ago when Christ was born. Now, some scholars point to the conditions in the Roman Empire, the things that were going on in the Roman Empire, which made the spread of the gospel possible in ways that never would have been possible before that Christmas night. They point to things like the vast Roman road system. They point to things like the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the fact that there was peace in much of the world, even though it was a brutally imposed peace in many places. Other commentators Note that it seems the time could not possibly have been full very soon after the fall, very soon after Adam and Eve sinned. It takes time for people to see their need for a Savior. It takes time for people to try out all the other possible means of salvation and see how short they fall. One commentator said 4,000 years were sufficient to show to man his own powers and to give him an opportunity to devise some scheme of salvation. Ample opportunity had been given to make a fair trial of the various systems of religion devised on national happiness and individual welfare, their power to meet and arrest crime, to purify the heart, to promote public morals, and to support man in his trials. All had failed. And then it was a proper time for the Son of God to come and to reveal a better system. So common sense tells us that all of this is true. These all seem to have been factors in why time was somehow less full before the night Jesus was born and was, in fact, full that night and not a minute before. But the truth is we can only know for certain what God tells us. And the Word of God is clear that God has appointed times and seasons for pretty much everything in history. Paul's not suggesting here that God is sitting there kind of watching helplessly, waiting and watching until conditions are just right before acting. The truth that's revealed to us in Scripture is that it is God himself who fills up time, so to speak, who brings about the necessary conditions, and then he acts decisively. All of this is brought about according to his purpose and in his perfect timing. So the fullness of time does not merely happen, but God brings it about. It is the date set by the Father. The Word is absolutely full of references to the appointed or perfect or fullness of time. There's the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah. 
Abraham had been promised by God that he would be the father of a great nation. One problem, he was old and he had no children and he just got older as time went by. I think that happens to most of us, doesn't it? So Abraham waited, and not really all that patiently, on the fulfillment of God's promise. And then we read in Genesis chapter 18, beginning with verse 10, Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you when? At the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. There was an appointed time, and it didn't make sense to old Sarah. And sometimes the appointed time does not make perfect sense to us either. It might seem slow in coming, even if we've heard a promise like Abraham certainly did. The prophet Habakkuk was helped to understand this when the Lord spoke this in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We see this same idea in many places in the New Testament. There was a perfect timing. There was a right time, a time that was full for everything in Jesus' life. Even the demons seemed to know something about this, but they didn't understand it perfectly any more than we do. They spoke this to Jesus. These are demons speaking in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Of course, Jesus didn't listen to the demons, and he cast them out anyway. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 18, where Jesus said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. We read in John chapter 7, verse 8, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. We read later in the same chapter, verse 30, So they were, speak, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. We read in John chapter 8, verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Later in John, apparently this wasn't true anymore. Apparently the time was full. We read in John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved them, loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then in John 17, Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Also, there are other things that Jesus referenced that required the perfect time, not just the events of his life. We read in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said, Take heed, keep on the alert. 
for you do not know when the appointed time will come. And then we see another passage in the New Testament where the same words that are used in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, fullness of time, are used. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 7, where it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So in Galatians, we see the fullness of time referencing the first coming of Christ, the first advent when Jesus was born. In Ephesians, the reference is to the end of time when Jesus will unite all things in him. But in both instances, the fullness of time means the same thing. It means the time is right. And a key phrase we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, helps us understand this concept maybe even a little bit more. We noted a few moments ago that we can speculate why time is full, but that we see through a glass darkly. We don't completely understand, only partially understand this. There are certain things that were true in the world when the time was full that were not true before that. But the most significant element in the fullness of time is simply this. This is God's plan. This is his plan. He knew when, where, all these things would happen. Let me read those last two verses, verses from Ephesians again with this idea in mind, where it says, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So God has a purpose, and God has a plan, and that plan includes not just any old time, but the perfect time. And when God's purpose is fulfilled, the fullness of time has arrived. God does nothing too soon, but foreseeing the end from the beginning, waits until all is ripe for implementing his purpose. Now, part of our struggle with waiting and hoping is the element of time itself, not just the perfect time. It's true. We don't always understand that either, why this time, for example, for something important is better than some other time, perhaps a time that we think would be better. But pondering things about God and his relationship to time may help us. Ultimately, thinking deeply about God and time may not really fully enhance our understanding of these things because the glimpses Scripture reveals about God's relationship to time versus our puny human understanding of time are truly mind-boggling. They're the kinds of things that can make your head hurt. My head hurt a lot this week as I was thinking about these things. I enjoy sci-fi movies or TV shows that deal with time travel because the implications of moving through time are really fascinating to me to think about. But what thinking about the truths about what Scripture does reveal regarding God and time can help us to grasp a little bit more fully the greatness, the majesty, the awesomeness of our great God. And in that, perhaps enable us to trust him more, even when we don't fully understand. One of the things that's frustrating to us is that we don't like to wait, as we noted at the beginning this morning. And we want to hang on to hope. 
But the longer we wait, the harder it is for us to hang on to hope. God's not a microwave God, though he could be if he so chose. He's more like a slow cooker or a crock pot. Slow and steady to our understanding are his works. But here's the thing that's not really possible for us to fully understand. God lives in an eternal now. He lives in an eternal now. So as Peter tells us, he's not slow, he's patient. Time is linear for us, isn't it? There's yesterday, there's a few minutes ago, there's now, there's tomorrow, there's next week, there's next month, there's next year. One thing after another, right? Of course, there's not even really a true now for us. Think about this, because as soon as we recognize that something's happening now and a thought about that flits through our minds, it's actually past, isn't it? Yet to God, as Scripture says, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are just like a day. When we think about God's creation, what we tend to think of generally is the world we live in. We tend to think of the vastness of space. We tend to think of the tiny intricacy of his creation in the world. We might think about the majesty of the mountains and the oceans, things like that. One thing we seldom think about in terms of God's creation is time. God created time and space and matter. We think of the space and matter quite often without often thinking of time as among those things that God created. But Scripture tells us time is one of those things that God created. Someone once said that time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. Wouldn't that be chaotic? to our understanding. And that's true, actually. It was meant to be a funny statement, but it's really true. Except nature itself was God's creation. You know, multitasking is a really big thing these days. You hear about productivity and multitasking, but many studies have shown that none of us are nearly as good at multitasking as we think we are. We actually focus best on one thing and one thing at a time. But our great and mighty God is the ultimate multitasker. And among all the amazing multitasking that God does is seeing all of time, past, present, and future, as one eternal now. Chew on this declaration from God himself given through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring, that means speaking these things into existence. So though God, in his grace, interacts with us constantly in time, God also stands outside of time in eternity. He sees the whole course of human history, yesterday, today, tomorrow. And in this vast, amazing understanding, God takes the free choices of his creatures, not just his sons and daughters, but even of his free creatures outside of Christ. And he accomplishes his plans 
and his purpose, purposes. And not just any old time, he accomplishes them at the perfect time. As Jim Garrett has noted, we toss around the word awesome just a little bit carelessly, but the only word that suffices to describe that truth is awesome, truly worthy of our awe. It's interesting to note some of the things that science has discovered about time, which might actually help us grasp it just a little bit more of the awesomeness of God and his relationship to time. Albert Einstein, his theory of relativity revolutionized science and physics. He was uh, said to have thought of as a boy that he wished he were a creature who could ride on a beam of light. He was fascinated by light and its properties. We have some science teachers here. I don't think we have any physicists here. Yet even a modest grasp of these things that Einstein learned about the relationship of light to time is worth pondering briefly this morning. It's worth thinking about because even though it does require a little bit of speculation, it's godly and it's biblically based speculation and it excites my imagination. And I don't know about you, I hope it excites yours too. So stick with me here just for a few minutes. I drew some of this from a great little book by a writer named Ellen Vaughn who used to co-write books with uh, Charles Coulson. The book was called Time Peace, and I'll have a few quotes from this book. One aspect of the theory of relativity, and this is the one we're going to think about a little bit this morning, says that the closer you get to the speed of light, which is actually 670 million miles per hour, the more time actually slows down. Think about that for a second. The theory is that time actually stops advancing once you reach the speed of light. Of course, nobody's ever reached the speed of light, so we don't know that for sure, but there have been tests that reveal the truth of this theory. And that brings up a fascinating question. Now think about it. I had never thought about this before I was studying for this message. But as we compare this truth to what Scripture tells us about our great God. So think about this. In essence, a being who could ride a light beam, as in Einstein's fanciful daydreams of his youth, would not age at all. For a being who moves at the speed of light, time would not move. This being would exist in an eternal now. This ageless being moving at the speed of light, existing in eternity, might he to some degree be light. Isn't that interesting to think about? What does the word tell us about God? It tells us in 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We read in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from who? From the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We read in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome us. And when we read about Jesus being transfigured in the Gospels, we read this in Matthew chapter 17, 
Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. We also read in Acts about Paul's Damascus Road experience. How did Jesus appear to Paul? As a bright light, blinding him. And then we read in the book of Revelation, we read of uh, eternity this way, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, of course, God is light is not a total description of God, any more than God is love, or God is just, or God is patient, or God is merciful. All these things are true of God, so God's really too big to be described with just one word or one phrase. Yet, if we're someday living in the light of God in heaven, we're dwelling in eternity with eternity. Time stops. Or, from our perspective, since we think of time as linear, it goes on forever and ever. We'll be in eternity with him, the author and creator of light itself, the one who is described as light. By the light of the Lamb we will walk, it tells us in the book of Revelation. And there will be no night. So in Christ, in eternity, we are made by his light into eternal beings. Now, Scripture only tells us for certainty that we will have a resurrection body. And hence that it will be much like the resurrection body that Jesus walked around in for 40 days before his ascension into heaven. So it would be hard for us to say with any certainty that Scripture tells us that in heaven, where the only light we'll need is the light of Jesus himself, that we'll be light too. That's pure speculation at best. But we will be eternal. We will be eternal. Paul tells us in Corinthians that we will have imperishable bodies. And if we're not somehow transformed into some form of light, we will at the very least be equipped and enabled in our resurrection bodies to go along for the ride, perhaps at the speed of light, which makes time stop, which is what eternity is. No time goes on forever and ever. And if the implications of Einstein's theory of relativity survive the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, we don't know that it will, but if they do, perhaps we can get just a hint of what God has created for our eternal existence in those resurrection bodies that exist with God in eternity. Now think about that for a minute. Please understand this is speculation. This is not doctrine. Okay, don't go home and say, Bill taught from the Bible today that we're going to be transformed into light. I don't know that. Yet these are still glimpses into the awesome nature of this great God that we serve. Amen? The cross of Christ is the intersection of time and eternity. And the cross is the place where we must meet him. The place where we must truly know God first and foremost. But what do these realities about God's fullness of time, God's perfect timing have to do with us? Is there any application or is this just really interesting things to think about or to uh, ponder for a little bit? Well, I believe there is much very clear application in these biblical truths, even though these are truths that we can't fully grasp, we can't fully understand in our finite minds. One application 
is that what we do today in time matters for eternity. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then rest in him because all these other things, all the things we need in the context of that passage are given to us. But what does that have to do with time? Priorities. Jesus said, seek when? First. That means in time before anything else. That means in time spending more time doing that than anything else. Without time, nothing can be first, can it? Nothing can be first, middle, or last, or most important, in time we have priorities exhibited by how we spend our time. And what Jesus said here is that his kingdom and his righteousness is to be our priority. Every choice we make, every deed we do is important today because when we seek first his kingdom, these acts are used by God to fill up time. And someday, time will be full and Jesus will return to bring an end to time as we know it. So we're stewards of this part of God's creation called time, just as we're to be stewards of other creations of God, right? For example, the material resources he provides, the money or the creation that he's given us to enjoy. We're to be stewards of these things, which are God's creation, just as much as we are to be stewards of time. Remember, a steward doesn't own anything. A steward just manages it. And though it might seem to be the least productive, quote-unquote, way to spend our time, the pursuit of God is, without a doubt, way more important than anything else in our lives that we pursue, and we tend to let those things crowd out our time for God. In order to stay tethered to a real understanding of God, we have to use time to seek Him as He really is. Since He is so beyond us, This can't be done quickly. Discerning the holy God requires concentration and attentiveness. If we grab God on the run like a bagel, our conception of him shrinks to carry-out size. And if our God is too small, we end up eventually in the grip of ridiculous idols. As we consider our stewardship of time, we can sometimes miss the big-picture timeline of God's perfect plans, his timing, his purposes. And maybe that's the reason we don't always look any different from the world around us, even as believers, because we're pursuing all the same things, spending all the same time doing the things that they are. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time and a place for everything. Later in that same chapter, it also tells us that we have eternity in our hearts. If you think about it, that means as followers of Christ, we can't lose. It's a win-win for us. When life in this time is going well, when things are really great and we're happy and we're joyful, we can think, as Matthew Henry once wrote, it's all this in heaven too. But when life, as it often is, is broken and it's filled with suffering and pain, we can know that we can have hope, that we can persevere, and it will end because the day will come when time is full. One great morning we will wake and the black plague of sin and death will be gone. And the great gift will not be time, but the eclipsing gift of eternity with the immeasurable joys and the bold laughter of heaven. We must learn to use time wisely. 
And the most wise thing we can do is to seek him first. If we're truly connected with this one who lives beyond time, we have a real choice in how we live in time. We can choose every day to spend time with the Lord, to listen to him, to access, to truly take advantage of the means of grace that he's given us. Prayer, the word, fellowship with the saints, even what we're doing here today. Or we can get distracted by seeking after other things, which is the opposite of what Scripture calls redeeming the time. Another practical application to this understanding of God and the fullness of time is that we can trust Him, knowing that He has a plan, knowing that He has a purpose. If we're waiting on something, we can know that God is still filling up the cup, so to speak, and when it's full, God will do what is for our good and for his glory. We can know for certain that he sees the end from the beginning. In fact, in a very very real sense, he is the beginning and the end. We read that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hands. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is who he says he is? Do we believe, as this verse from Revelation tells us, that he is the alpha, that he is the omega, that he is the beginning, and he is the end? Is he big enough to hold us in his hands, even as he holds time in his hands? Can we really trust him with our lives, the same lives that are made up of the time that we have on this earth? Our lives and our time belong to him. If we do trust him, it gives us a completely different perspective about interruptions, about emergencies, about difficulties, even about pain. Because if time is truly in God's hands, then nothing is wasted. If he really is the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God, then he somehow orchestrates all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. His purpose, his purpose, not yours, not mine, but nevertheless for our good. For the believer, for the one who's seeking first God's kingdom, There's no such thing as wasted time. There's only full-time hope. Hope all the time and hope in the fullness of time, God's perfect timing. Hope in God who holds time in his hands. Hope in the one who fills up time to accomplish his purposes in the perfect timing. Let's ponder these truths as we enter this Christmas season And consider the incarnation that took place when? In the fullness of time. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that our times are in your hands. And Father, when we look at good things that are happening in our lives, we're grateful for that truth. We're especially grateful for that truth, Heavenly Father, when things are difficult, knowing that your plans and your purposes are good for our good and for your glory, knowing that your timing is perfect, And knowing that none of these things happens 
without your guiding hand, Lord God. We are grateful for these truths, Father. May we learn to rest in the peace of knowing that our times are truly in your hands. And when the fullness of time comes, we will have the joy and privilege of spending eternity with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who stands beyond time, stands out of time in an eternal now, yet graciously and mercifully interacts with us in this time that we live in. We thank you for these truths, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.